hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Visual Arts Passage, an all-in-one online resource for artists around the world. Visual Arts Passage offers mentorships for illustration and painting, for publishing, fine art, editorial, basically anywhere a story can be told with visuals. Their classes are small, immersive, learn-by-doing experiences, led by industry-leading pros. And in less than 12 months, Visual Arts Passage students build a career-ready portfolio and have taken it to beat down the doors at The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Simon & Schuster, Sony, and more. Want to see them in action? Each Thursday, they offer a free life-drawing live stream featuring award-winning guest artists and photographers. It's open to the public, fully immersive, and did I mention that it's 100% free? Sign up at visualartspassage.com art. Again, that's visualartspassage.com art and get drawing. So even just to, to start at our, our most basic, you know, Panofskian <laughs> descriptions um, of what we're looking at, and I never actually get the chance to do this, so I'm going to take a crack at do it. Do it, yeah. So it's a large circle. It has a kind of surface of the moon sense to it where it's very organically a relief from the earth of stone that is is covered in the reflective surface kind of at the top of the stone like where you would sit like if it's if you could um you know but it's flat and and it looks almost like a stamp that didn't get quite enough ink or that got pushed down on on one side more so that you pick it up and it it yeah it has that kind of semi-relief look to it but it's still very natural looking it doesn't like even though it's not entirely filled in with the polished surface, it's, it, it doesn't look like it's missing anything. It looks like it's just adding some shade and some volume. I apologize if I say this was a little mistake that I actually love, Please. was that you called the sides of it stone when they're steel also. Oh, really? Yeah. And what's it great about like that, yeah, is that it looks like stone. Okay. And, you know, it looks like a ruin from the very moment it went in. Is this a meteor that hit the earth? You know, is this... Um, something that is from the future or the past but um, we really want it to feel like something that's completely integrated and I think that idea of it possibly being stone gets to that right that it's it's part of the landscape a man just walked by and said that it looked like an amphitheater love it Um, something else that you don't notice from a distance uh, and that you only notice when you get closer is that the entire thing isn't flat and I think that that kind of lends itself to the amphitheater feel is that the sides are a little higher and that the entire thing kind of comes in a little bit in the center and raises on the sides which you notice more when the clouds are not (laughs) reflecting in it so I mean like any like any reflection of nature it's constantly changing yeah the reflective material also looks watery, like mm-hmm. it has a it has a surface of the water, um, kind of blurry um, fluidity to it. I was here once. We had an evening event, and so it seemed like it was dark out, but fallen sky was still quite bright. Hmm. 
And I realized, you know, it is dark out, but when you actually look up at the sky, it's still really light. And it made me think of looking at um, a lake or an ocean at that kind of, you know, post sundown, but not quite fully, fully dark. And that body of water is lighter than everything else around it. And it's because of that. And it was kind of this interesting way of me kind of rethinking what I knew about nature through an artwork, which is fun as a Storm King curator yeah. to be able to do. This is The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses, one object at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai. Episode 59, Sarah Z's Fallen Sky, from 2021. Anyone who knows me since I was like 12 can tell you that my favorite all-time movie was, and still is, Apollo 13. Maybe that will surprise you. I'm obviously pretty artsy-fartsy, and I had terrible grades in math and science all throughout school. But maybe you just haven't seen the movie. It's got everything. Adventure, historical accuracy, potent cinematic suspense, even though everyone watching already knows how it ends. And, of course, mid-90s Kevin Bacon in a towel. But it also taps into something very real, very primal, that lives in the heart of every kid. A morbid fascination with outer space and our Earth just chilling within it. It's unimaginable size and age and elusive materiality, this land before time, before dinosaurs roamed the Earth, the Big Bang. Moon rocks, craters, nothingness. And no matter how many times I've watched it, for all the film's drama, the most heartbreaking scene to me is when the astronauts have realized that they won't be landing on the moon after all, but they still need to circle it to come back home. And as they get as close to the moon as any of them ever will, these usually stoic right stuffers with haircuts you could set your watch to are clamoring for window space. You want to look? Oh, look at that. Wow. Look, it's Frau Morrow. I can see our landing site. Wow. Look at that Tsiolkovsky crater. I can't believe how bright the ejecta blanket is. It's like snow. It's beautiful. Excited as little boys to be so close to those mountains and craters and bright putty-colored moon dirt hanging in an endless black sky of stars. There's nothing on the moon, literally nothing, and yet it's sublime. Buzz Aldrin's second man on the moon words will always live in the shadow of Neil's steps and leaps, but they were so much more authentic to the romance of the moment when he dreamily remarked on the moon's, quote, magnificent desolation. There's such a sincere romance for that pre-time nothingness, the contradiction inherent in something as tangible as moon rocks, but 
always just beyond our grasp. Because really, how many of us will ever walk on the moon? Even those of us who were supposed to couldn't. And so, because we can't experience it, the world that existed before us and all around us, its romance and ruins, all craters and clouds and sky, well, we have to dream it. And some of us attempt to recreate it. Sarah Z's Fallen Sky, the first permanent artwork installed at Storm King Art Center in 12 years, is this attempt. Its sublime nothingness in steel. It simultaneously evokes the imprint of an asteroid that's cratered into the Earth and the remains of something that has been long abandoned, eroded by time and the elements. It's 36 feet in diameter, an enormous circular weathered bowl like a map of the moon, comprised of 132 steel pillars polished to a mirror shine, like pools of molten silver atop what look like old stone boulders. And it should and does feel ancient and inert, except for the fact that each steel mirror looks as though it's craning its neck, reflecting the sky, which you begin to realize is incredibly alive and present and uncapturable, clouds and sunbeams moving at a frantic clip. You can almost imagine how much time it would have saved Monet in episode seven to just install this sculpture instead of trying to paint the atmospheric course of the sun throughout the day over those countless canvases. And the overall result with Fallen Sky is that you have an installation that is steeped in exhilarating contradictions. It is always, in Z's words, teetering between two extremes, wondrous and futile, where the negative space is just as important as the positive space. It's an artwork about destruction, an active smash and imprint into the earth that then slowly and intentionally evolves with the earth. It's about the presence of absence, its remnants of something whole that is now half gone, but reflecting a living world, feeling both permanent and ephemeral, inanimate and alive, abandoned old ruins that are still actively disrupting their space and yours. Because disruption is everywhere at Storm King. Storm King is essentially an enormous sculpture park, a 500-acre outdoor museum in New York's Hudson Valley, an area already indebted to its mountainous vistas and endless sky. And the artworks are meant to interrupt that, what would otherwise be acres upon acres of open, cultivated land. And when you walk around Storm King, you realize that there are a lot of different ways to be interrupted. Sometimes it's because the expected landscape beneath your feet has been altered, like in Maya Lin's wave field, which undulates the ground like ocean waves, fluid and disorienting, like the Berlin Holocaust Memorial that we looked at in episode 56. But more often, your experience at Storm King is disrupted by a thing. That is, a giant, site-specific sculpture. Some are rust-colored and weathered with patina. They echo natural forms. They're spindly as spiders. They're completely organically at home in the landscape. 
and others feel totally out of place, freshly painted, brightly colored, like an enormous distracted toddler has dropped their toy from above. But what these artworks all share is the fact that they're always unexpected. They surprise you. And not just because their forms are unexpected, but because their context is. We're used to seeing sculptures in a very specific context, a museum, surrounded by white walls and those little text boxes and the implied expectation that the goal is to understand what we're looking at, or at least try to. But when we're outside, in the elements, just out on a walk, on our own time, we don't expect to be confronted with expectation. It's just not the headspace we're in. We're not as worried that we're doing it wrong. We have more agency to walk around a sculpture, to experience it from all sides, to breathe the same air as it. And with every lungful, we realize that nature itself has been folded into the experience of appreciating this art. We look up at these industrial pillars that have been hammered into organic shapes, the studs and rebar that seem so out of place on this breezy hillside. And we begin to notice the environment itself, the way our bodies move in it, the way the sunlight streams through the clouds onto the metal, which is different than onto tree trunks. And then the gentle smell of sweat on a heavy, hot summer day, and the fresh cut grass and the buzzing of insects flying in plumes around clover. And this, you start to realize, is the magic of environmental art, of land art, of art that's just outside. When you're interrupted by a sculpture in the middle of a landscape, it's not really the sculpture you notice, but the landscape itself. And suddenly you find yourself seeing it again, as though for the first time. And this is what Fallen Sky and any artwork by Sarah Z is really about, paying attention. It's an installation that is both of its environment and observing it, just like you are. The polished surfaces themselves noticing a different piece of sky or tree branch or fast-moving cloud from moment to moment. And just like Storm King shows us how many ways there are to be disrupted, Fallen Sky shows us how many ways there are to pay attention. It asks us to pay attention to the otherwise unremarkable patch of land where it's located, an area chosen specifically by Z because it had been neglected, the basin of a large tree that had died and was removed, leaving an armpit-like crater on the path from one artwork to another. Without Fallen Sky, it would just be some more twiggy, leafy land, although to be fair, you could say that about anywhere at Storm King that doesn't have an artwork on it. But then, the ruins and reflections take our attention one layer deeper, drawing our awareness to the nature beyond the elements that we can feel to the ones that we can't, to something far more primal, the slow machinery of the natural world that undergirds everything, the speed of the earth spinning, the movement of tectonic plates beneath our feet. We know these things exist. We know they affect us. But we can't feel them with our bodies or truly grasp them with our minds. This depth, 
These layers, this sense of slow, subtle environmental awareness, is what distinguishes Fallen Sky from so many other sculptures at Storm King. From Fallen Sky, you can look out at the colorful amalgamations of Marc de Severo that rise up from the land, visible from every vista. You can see Richard Serra, whose entire goal, as we discussed in episode eight, is to get all up in your space, to manspread, to compress you. It's the job of these sculptures to get in the way of your gentle nature walk. But Fallen Sky is different because it's not about disrupting nature. It is nature. From the moment of its installation, Fallen Sky feels like it's always been there, eroding, deteriorating, which is even reflected in the landscaping around it. Z wanted to plant grass that looked scruffy and scrubby, like it grew up around something abandoned, always threatening to overgrow it. And it calls to mind other artworks that attempt to do this, to defer to nature, to speak the language of their natural surroundings. For example, the Yucatan mirror displacements from 1969 by the land artist Robert Smithson, who chose sites on the Yucatan Peninsula to simply place mirrors that reflect the sky. Or Yoko Ono's Sky TV from 1966, a live video feed of the sky above as transmitted into the gallery. Fallen Sky feels almost like the child of these two artworks, and their logical next step. Because while both Smithson and Ono's works were created to be temporary, Fallen Sky is meant to be permanent, to appear perpetually eroding, not marking or reflecting or harmonizing with the landscape, but instead becoming it. This effect, both so gentle and so monumental, wouldn't have been possible without two fundamental elements of Sarazi's art and process, materials and time. Her work has always been an exploration of these ideas, the way that they intertwine with and disrupt one another, and ultimately encourage us, again, to better pay attention, to better make meaning of our world. She was born in Boston in 1969, the daughter of an American schoolteacher mother and a Chinese architect father, and grew up surrounded by blueprints and models, erector sets and tinker toys. She was originally trained as a painter, and she describes how learning to paint a figure quickly wasn't really the art, but an athletic skill. And she talks about how difficult it became to draw the distinction between painting, sculpture, and installation, especially as it relates to how the viewer experiences the work. None of these terms really matter, she argues, when you're out there in the real world interacting with them. Her art always lay in making things, painting that became sculpture, sculpture that became installation, installations that are comprised of wholly unexpected materials. And she is always, always exploring materials, how they can be manipulated, how they can be stretched beyond their universal utilitarian functions into something more profound. She loves changing our perceptions of what materials are or should be used for. She makes sculpture with the rubbery squish of dried paint. She processes stainless steel to appear as something else entirely. Rock, stone, the mirror of fallen sky. 
But then she takes it further, again, making us pay attention to ourselves and how we respond to these subverted expectations of what materials are supposed to do, to the way that we use materials to make meaning of the world. I mean, as we explored with Anselm Kiefer in episode 48, we infuse inanimate objects with life all the time. The shirt I'm currently wearing could be worn, even as I speak, by a million other people. What makes it special? What makes it mine? And this is where she introduces the element of time in her work. Time is in a few different places. It takes time to walk around her installations, which are carefully arranged, immersive jumbles of mass-produced objects that have no intrinsic aesthetic value, like toothpicks and toilet paper and birthday candles and thumbtacks and aspirin tablets. And it takes time to recognize this or that bit of bric-a-brac that evokes something in you, either because you appreciate it for its aesthetics I mean, stare at a Q-tip long enough and you begin to notice and kind of like its clean white symmetry, its distinctive textures, and also for what it might make you think of. I, for one, discovered Q-tips when I was 10, rifling through the medicine cabinet, my bare feet on the cool patterned tile of my bathroom floor, looking at how my eyes seemed all distorted in the silver fixtures of the sink, and whoa, suddenly I'm time traveling. I'm swimming in memory, all because of a Q-tip. Picked out of this mess of stuff, it becomes my Q-tip. And this is exactly what Z is hoping to evoke in us when we walk around her large, chaotic, extraordinary installations, which also feel like the natural next generation of Duchamp from episode 17, of Oldenburg from episode 49. This is sculpture that has leapt off its pedestal painting that's poured out of its frame, into our space, blurring art and life, fine art and everyday crap, and giving us the opportunity to stand with it and discover its value with all the breeziness of a nature walk in our own time. And I'll be the first to admit this process isn't easy or obvious. Granted, I'm the kind of person who watches Sleeping with the Enemy and secretly thinks that the kitchen organizational styles of the abusive husband aren't that bad. But even so, Z's installations to the average person can feel incredibly cluttered and unruly, like a giant's junk drawer has finally exploded. I walked around one of her installations, the fifth season, which was exhibited in the Interior Museum at Storm King, temporarily accompanying the installation of Fallen Sky. And I tried, man. I tried to find some purchase. And when I did, it was so unexpected and lovely. It was a video projection of a bird flapping its wings over a photograph of a bird. And in the midst of all this mess, I was so gently disarmed. I found myself thinking about flapping wings and wide open sky and looking up from a beach and wet sand between my toes. All of this, Z says, these installations, these materials, are in the service of an experience like that, of memory. 
Our brains and our memories, I'll even concede, don't line up like cans of peas with the labels facing out. They are, quite literally, a junk drawer. A muddle of associations and triggers, colors and subjects, scraps and emotions. It's wild what our brains do. We look at images and we recognize how our memories are compressed into single photographic moments, what Z calls interior images, that then expand to fill the space again, to fill whole years of our lives. All of being 10 years old becomes just a handful of memories, triggered by a Q-tip, or a single frozen photograph, which is supposed to stand in for our memory. But of course, a photograph is never enough. It's never capable of capturing everything that it evokes. And this is why we need the present, too. This is why Z is so compelled to smear the boundaries between the past and present, between the inanimate and the alive, what we remember and what we experience. And she does this specifically by breaking down the relationship between the real and the represented in her own materials. So what do I mean by this? It's conceptual, but bear with me. Remember back in episode 22, when we looked at Magritte's impish pipe, and we first confronted the idea that there's a difference between a thing, an object, and the representation of a thing, the painting of an object. A pipe isn't the same as a painting of a pipe. You get it. But we kind of ignore this in terms of our understanding of the world. I mean, even my toddler knows that an apple in a picture is the same as his crunchy snack and isn't. And Z, like Magritte, is fascinated by breaking this relationship apart, by pointing out that there is a difference. And she wants to make us pay attention to how readily we accept them to be one and the same, especially in the 21st century, bombarded as we are with images, images that seem real. She's genuinely trying to understand how we think, how we process a world of materials, a world of photographs, and how these materials and photographs evoke entire universes of memory and associations in our heads. And so, in her work, we always have the real and we have the represented. For example, in the fifth season, she uses her iPhone to record a video of the rays of light that enter the space and then projects that video onto the light itself as it moves across the room, phasing the two, like a visual example of how the edge plays off of his own guitar's delay to create the melodic rhythm in U2's Where the Streets Have No Name. The real and the represented can be an incredibly productive conversation. They become an exhilarating contradiction of a frozen moment that once existed and the perpetual dynamic present. Like the ruins of the past, come alive in this moment, reflecting the clouds.
which brings us back to fallen sky. Blurring the boundaries between object and image, mirroring the clouds while itself so inert. And standing at its base, you almost feel like you're watching the earth think, remember, make associations. You're seeing it converse with the sunlight as it moves across the sky, with the magnificent desolation of the moon, reflecting a landscape that's forever in flux, teetering between extremes, tangible as moon rocks and always beyond our grasp. It's a fragile pursuit, Z says, paying attention to the world like this, to the world paying attention to itself. And it's also what makes living under this sky, with the ground beneath our feet, so wondrous, so futile, and so utterly sublime. Special thanks to Nora Lawrence at Storm King Art Center, Evan The Edge Blanche for his musical help, and to Storm King for their support with this episode. For more information, past episodes, and all the images, go to thelonelypalette.com, where you can also find more information about the show, including how to commission episodes, how to book a virtual museum tour over Zoom, you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter, and you can peruse our store. We're also all over social media, and you can follow us on Twitter at Lonely Palette, on Instagram at The Lonely Palette, and if you're feeling all 2015, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Your support of the show means more than anything, so please take some time today to tell a friend about this art history podcast that you like, and maybe consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash lonelypalette. The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of mind-expanding, story-driven podcasts. And Hub and Spoke is currently hiring a director of development. So if you're the kind of experienced fundraiser who loves listening to and telling stories, and that latter part probably goes without saying, given that you're an experienced fundraiser, check out the listing at hubspokeaudio.org jobs. And if you're looking for a great episode of audio to listen to, Check out one of the latest episodes of Soonish, Wade Rausch's show about technology, culture, and the future. This past spring, Wade traveled to Albuquerque, where he stumbled on a dispute pitting the city's historical commission against a rising generation of New Mexican artists. If a decision by the commission stands, two brand new murals in Albuquerque will be erased in the name of historical preservation. Who gets to decide what parts of the past to preserve and which voices will be part of the city's future? Wade puzzles it out at soonishpodcast.org. You can also find the episode at hubspokeaudio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.